But here we are. Uh, we are continuing in our sermon series looking at the book of Genesis. And uh, we are in chapter 2. We'll finish chapter 2 today uh, and the very last section of this chapter. And last week we started looking at this section and this text and saw for the very first time in, in, in God's creation, God is looking at what he has made. And, and instead of saying this is good, he has found something over which he said this is not good. <laughs> the first malediction. And that was the fact that this first man was alone. And when we left off, it was completely apparent, not only to God in his observation, but also to the man himself, that among all the other creatures that God had already created, there was not yet an azer fit for him. And so that brings us to where we left off to answer the question, what will God do? <laughs> How will he resolve this reality that it's not good? So I'll read the entire passage, 18 to 25, again, even though we'll only be focusing on the latter part this morning. This is Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25. This is God's holy word. Then the Lord God, Yahweh, said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This ends the reading of God's word. Will you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, we do ask now that as we come to this, your word, that you would meet with us. However, we come here this morning, whether we have come with great expectation to be here, to celebrate, to hear from you, whether we're here just because it's rote habit, whether we're here this morning and truth be told, we are, there is, there is anxiety, there are concerns in our soul that perhaps we not, have not even shared with anyone around us this morning. Father, would you demonstrate, convince us that you call us to yourself just as we are in order that you might meet with us. We do pray, Father, that you would meet with us now through these, your words, so that at the end of this, Jesus, you being the one who has words of eternal life, we will know that we have met, we have encountered you as the living word of God. Jesus, that is our prayer this morning. We pray for your sake. Amen. 
Well, I don't know how many weddings I have done or had an officiant's role in since being ordained. (laughs) But what I always love to watch while everyone else has their eyes at the beginning gazing towards the back of the room, I love the spot that I have to watch the groom, (laughs) to watch his face, to watch his expression, to watch his reaction when those double doors are opened in the back and there is presented the bride. The entire congregation at, at that point is in awe of the stunning beauty of the bride standing in the back. Smiles are on everyone's faces. Tears are being shed. Everyone is moved. But there's one human being in that room who's about, absolutely about to completely come unhinged. <laughs> And often they're doing everything they can to hold it together (laughs) and put on a game face as if it's all good and normal inside. (laughs) That's the groom. (laughs) And any attempt they are making to portray that they've got it all together inside is a sham. (laughs) They don't. Some grooms are not very good at hiding it and they do break down. (laughs) Adam here can't lie. He expresses, we hear him express exactly what he's experiencing. Because what we have here, as we said last week, we very much can say this is the first wedding ceremony in the history of human civilization. And verse 21 tells us how that God was going to make an azer fit for this man. And how does he do it in verse 21? God performs surgery. (laughs) God causes a sleep to fall over Adam, and therefore Adam will therefore not be party to or an active agent in this process, this work to make the woman. God is going to have to do the work here. But the man is going to have to give something up. (laughs) He's going to have to give something of himself for the woman to be given life. For while he sleeps, Genesis says that God took one of Adam's ribs, in verse 22, from that rib, he made a woman. And then just as it still is very often in wedding ceremonies today, when the bride is actually brought to the groom. So here, when Adam awakes in verse 22, God brought the woman to the man. And when that happens... The man, Adam, cannot contain himself. (laughs) And he breaks out into the very first poetry and song ever recorded in the history of human civilization. Verse 23, this is at last. (laughs) Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of The man, when Adam sees the woman, when he looks here, it's a complex observation that only poetry can really do justice to. But it's not too dissimilar to him looking in the mirror and seeing what was missing that is now here. (laughs) It's him, but it's not him. It's his completion, but still at the very same time, very much a distinct human being from him. And Adam is beside himself. We could say almost literally he is beside himself. 
there's a unity within this diversity. It's a truly perfect, complementary, by being opposite and fit, partnership. Male and female, just as God said he was going to do. I love how the commentator Matthew Henry describes the creation of woman. His commentary on this particular passage, he says, the woman was not made out of the man's head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Perhaps that's as good as any way to translate the Hebrew poetry that we read here. Now, have you noticed anything as you think back over the first two chapters of Genesis to this point? Have you noticed anything missing thus far? Thus far, we've been introduced to the God who made all things. We've been introduced to God who made the lights that govern the day, the light to govern the night, and oh yeah, all the stars. Remember that? (laughs) All the land, sea, and heavenly creatures. We've been introduced to the God who reveals his personal covenantal name, Yahweh, as we were introduced to the details of his involvement in the creation and formation of the first humans, his image bearers. So much creative undertaking on a cosmic scale have we been introduced to. That on its own, the rest of a, the Bible would tell us is sufficient for human beings, full adoration and praise. And yet, not once yet, as God's image bearers, have we been commanded to offer praise and worship back to this God for all of this work in the first two chapters of Genesis. There is no call to worship Yahweh yet. The very first words of celebration and praise out of the mouth of a human, (laughs) being recorded in the Bible, were not directed to God. They were directed to another human being. Now, that should tell us something about the importance of speaking words of encouragement to each other. This is (laughs) pre-fall. This is pre-sin. That means it's not that there's something broken within us as human beings that giving and receiving words of praise and affirmation and encouragement are part of the way things are to be. It's not out of our weakness that we are built to give and to receive words of encouragement, but rather it's our humanness created in the image of God who dwells in perfect communion and love toward each other from all eternity. It's literally in our bones. Now, the narrator then next adds a commentary about this union between the first man and woman that will be referenced later by both Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, to to this point in our text, we've, we've noted on several occasions how the ancient Near Eastern recipient of this text, hearing this, would have been shocked or astonished at, at some things they were hearing here, things they would have not heard any other time before. And here there's another part. <laughs> Shouldn't be surprised that in this section there's also something that they would have been 
it would have been a bit jolting to hear. The word translated here that leave, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, can also mean to forsake. And in fact, the meaning here is closer to that. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern world and in Israel's history prior to Jesus' coming, it was completely normal and expected for the wife to move in with her husband into his parents' home. That was the standard, usual arrangement for marriage. And that would have been the case when the original audience first heard this text. And so he isn't speaking about physically leaving. (laughs) After all, that's his home. (laughs) Rather, he means an emotional or relational leaving or forsaking. His wife is now as one flesh to be his priority. As high as a priority of ensuring one's parents were cared for, for honoring them in that culture, this must have been absolutely astonishing to hear. (laughs) For, of course, although he certainly doesn't mean literally forsaking, (laughs) he is relativizing, the narrator is relativizing our connection, the man's emotional and relational connection to his father and mother in a whole new way as this new relational bond and unit with the wife was now created as one flesh, and she was now to be the priority. I have to admit, <laughs> I did not make application this, uh, a good application of this text in my marriage <laughs> early on. And that created quite a bit of unnecessary pain and hurt for Jen that I regret and I've, I've had to <clears throat> since repent of. Thankfully, G, uh, Jen is, is, is a gracious and she has been kind <laughs> in her forgiveness towards me. But we do very well to seriously take the exhortation by the narrator here in what he is saying about marriage. Now, this completion of the creation of man <clears throat> and woman and bringing them together is the final pairing of two separate and distinct things that work together in a complementary way that we've seen in God's created order. There's been a pattern here in the first two books. God is making a world where we see multiple times God creating things that are separate or separated and distinct and yet complementary again and again. He made the heavens and the earth. He made the night and the day. He separated the water from the land. And now there is male and female. And so Genesis provides the basis and framework for celebrating maleness and femaleness in how they truly complement each other and in fact are both necessary for humanity to fully bear the image of our triune God. Genesis provides the basis for celebrating that rather than obliterating those distinctions. And that's an observation that our current cultural moment does not welcome. Yes, there can be abuse in how femaleness and maleness shows itself. We're not talking about some kind of macho, hyper-abusive masculinity when it comes to maleness. (laughs) But both Moses here... In Genesis 1 and 2, 
and Jesus and the Apostle Paul do celebrate a rightful creational distinction between male and female who are both necessary to properly and fully image the God that created them. And so this passage actually confronts two extremes regarding maleness and femaleness. On the one hand, it challenges any hint of misogynistic thinking that operates out of a belief that men are just by nature intrinsically superior to women. (laughs) But on the other extreme, it challenges an approach to gender that seeks to obliterate any and all distinctions between maleness and femaleness. Both extremes are unable to find their basis or support in Genesis 1 and 2. But unfortunately, as we are all very much aware, Genesis 3 is just around the corner. And thus the reality is this side of the fall, we now live in a world where these two extremes that Genesis 1 and 2 do not provide any basis for exist. We live in a broken world where the reality is that women have been and do get subjugated to men's evil and selfish desires and unhealthy hunger for power. And we live in a broken world where sin's effect on human beings' sexuality has been significantly consequential. Despite the goodness of the creation that God made and how maleness and females originally worked beautifully together, a robust theology that takes the effects of the fall of Genesis 3 seriously, and we're getting to that next week, we'll also have a robust understanding of the full extent of how sin has affected even our sexuality. It's disastrous. And the truth is, human beings now do struggle with confusion about their gender and sexuality in a way that was not part of the original good created order. And in fact, most of us today, I would probably make the case, likely have friends or even family members who have been affected by this aspect, this particular aspect of the fall. So how should a robust theology that takes the seriousness of the fall in Genesis 3 into account affect how we interact with them? I would humbly suggest this morning that we would do well to follow Jesus's approach to the reality of this fallen and broken world and sin's effect on who we are and how we exist. When Jesus sees the brokenness of this world and how image bearers have been marred and affected by the fallenness of this world, we read in Matthew 9 that he grieves. He mourns that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Matthew 9, we read, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, there's a better way. (laughs) And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had compassion. And by doing so, Jesus wasn't diminishing or minimizing the effects of the crowd's own sin on their own lives. Jesus never once compromised the truth. But what Jesus' ministry and the rest of the Bible demonstrate is that truth and compassion do not have to be at odds. 
Elsewhere, Paul says as much. In his letter to the church of Ephesus, Paul exhorts us plainly, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. In love. Paul's saying the very manner in which we proclaim and point out the truth, no matter what the context of truth is that we are addressing, is to occur within the bounds, within the context, within the framework of love. It's to be characterized by love. Yes, there were certainly times when Jesus spoke plainly and even sternly in the Gospels. But it was most often in relationship to the hardness of an individual's heart and the amount of influence and power they had over God's people. The harder the heart, (laughs) the greater the influence, the harsher the tone. And so when Paul urges us to speak the truth, the truth, hold on to the truth, and do it in love, he has agape, love, in mind. Where we read in 1 Corinthians that love bears all things, this agape love believes all things, this love that you are to speak the truth in hopes all things. It holds on to the hope that the power of the gospel is strong enough and powerful enough to reorient one's life and posture towards their creator God and to Jesus himself. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, please. (laughs) Genesis 1 and 2 in the Bible is very clear on the creational framework for how males and females are to relate to each other. But loving someone who is struggling and dealing with the brokenness and fallenness of this world in their sexuality, or in any way for that matter, does not itself indicate some kind of condoning of a lifestyle that is a departure from what we see at creation or that one is compromising the truth. And again, Jesus would be our example. Jesus came and loved sinners, not in spite of their sin, but because of their sin. He knew how much they needed a savior. He knew how much they, how we need to have our image restored and repaired. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he did so by going to them, spending time with them. So much so that he often spent table fellowship with him in a way that got him in trouble with the religious establishment of his day. You see, to sit down over a meal with a human being that the religious community considered a sinner was tantamount, in their minds at least, (laughs) to sanctioning and condoning the lifestyle of those sinners. Often people, often the religious leaders would come to disciples and say, why does your rabbi, why does your teacher sit down with sinners and have table fellowship? His character, Jesus' own character and standards were questioned. Was Jesus ever condoning the sin in the sinners that he was sharing table fellowship with? Absolutely not. In fact, the woman that was brought to him, remember what he says? He has compassion on her. Neither I, where are your accusers? Where are your condemners? They're not here. Neither do I. Now, go and sin no more. Jesus himself says, I've come to seek and save the lost. I don't come for the healthy. They don't need a physician. I've come for those who need healing. 
And at the end of the day, the reality is Jesus came for every one of us sitting here as lost sinners. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, we are all, every one of us sitting here this morning are all broken in some shape or another in our own sexuality. One Christian writer talks about how the goal of the Christian standard and goal of Christian shape and form of sexuality is not simply heterosexuality, but it's uniheterosexuality. That, what does he mean by that? He means as God's image bearers, Genesis 2 shows us that you and I were ultimately created to share and pursue our sexuality with only our covenant spouse of the opposite sex. This is how we were made and designed and intended to live out and enjoy our sexuality as God's image bearers. And so that, therefore, we all miss the mark. All of our sexual bent is distorted. Not only if we are sexually attracted to someone of the same sex, but if we are sexually attracted at any point, anytime to anyone other than the one with whom we have covenant faithful relationship with. My friends, if you can relate to that reality, (laughs) this side of Genesis 3 in the fall, if you feel that, that tug to have ever to be attracted to anyone other than your covenant faithful spouse, (laughs) then you will hear good news when Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Because you know that means Jesus came even for you. Now, before I close, I have to at least note how the narrator ends this section. Because it's an observation about reality that's going to be the very first thing affected and attacked and lost after our first human parents rebel in the next chapter. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now, that is saying a whole lot more than just about sexual intimacy. Prior to sin entering the picture, the man and his wife related to each other in a state where they were fully exposed to each other. They knew everything about each other. They knew each other fully inside and out. And they weren't ashamed. They were not ashamed. There was nothing to hide. They had no fear of risking rejection by the other. Can you imagine a world where that exists? having relationships in this life where there was no reason to imagine or fear others taking advantage of you, using you for for their own agenda, shaming you, manipulating you, or simply leaving you for any reason at all. We all still long to be fully known and loved like that, but our experience now This side of the fall is more often about guarding who we are behind a facade that we put up to make it look as if we have it all together because we fear the closer others get, the greater our chance of rejection. And if that generally characterizes how we interact with other human beings, it makes perfect sense that the more we rightly see ourselves and the ways we fall short of the glory of God, the more we have reason to fear God getting too close. And yet in the gospel, we have a bridegroom, one who is the second Adam, the better Adam, 
who comes to seek and to save that which was lost. A bridegroom, this Jesus who goes out of his way to restore the relationship and fellowship humanity once knew prior to our sin entering the picture. And whereas this first Adam that we see in Genesis 2 was not party to the process that brought woman to life, the second Adam took it upon himself, as Philippians says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first Adam gave up a rib for his bride to come to life. The second Adam, Jesus, gave up his life that his bride might have life. So much so that we can now stand in his presence, fully exposed and known by him, inside and out, known by Jesus even better than we know ourselves. And yet, by faith in him, we can be assured that he now speaks good benediction over us. He's not ashamed of us. Rather, he moves closer to us. He embraces us. In fact, he puts his own garments around us. His own righteous garments. That is how God sees you now. Because of what the greater bridegroom, the second Adam, Jesus did, gave up and died in order that you might know that type a fellowship once again with your creator and your God. Genesis shows us that we start with a wedding, (laughs) a wedding that breaks down, but there's another wedding on the horizon in the future when the great bridegroom will return. He will be, (laughs) we will be presented to him And we will know fellowship and communion and love with him for all eternity. Jesus himself says, even now, before I return, keep in mind, remember that even you as my part of my bride, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Come what may. Others may, I will not. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus for you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise and thanks as we stand in awe of what was necessary both for you as the Father, but even you, Jesus, as the Son, in order to save and redeem and restore us as your now bride. It required not just a rib. It required your bloodshed, your body broken, your very death, that we might now stand in the presence of God with your righteous garments, having all exposed, all of the sin and everything within, fully exposed and yet washed and cleansed, even as the sacrament that we participated in a little while ago, baptism demonstrates. That is what you have done. You have washed us clean. And now we stand with you, Jesus, as the great bridegroom. And we look forward to that day when you will return. And until then, we hang on to your words and your promise that as the good and ultimate bridegroom, you will not ever dismiss us, 
You will not shame us. You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. Help us to believe that anew and afresh this morning. For your sake, amen.